Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Greasy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. And hello once again, this is Coach Chuck Creasy, and it's another week of American Tennis. And every week, we try to get down and dirty and try to figure out what the heck is going on and how in the world are we going to uh, reignite or help reignite uh, tennis in America? The greatest sport in the world is not doing so well. well. Again, we all of our players knocked out of the U.S. Open again. Uh, gosh, that's 72 tries now. There's 71 because you can't count a 70. 70. Can't count Wimbledon, can't count the French Open. But it's been 2002 since we've had a champion on the men's side and that is not a slam on anybody that's doing the training or any of our great players something is going on and again uh, I always bring this fact up that in 1986 and throughout the 80s we dominated the world of tennis and I don't care whether the Soviet Union had Eastern European countries locked up in the Soviet Union and they weren't in the mix or I don't care if the academies in Spain weren't there, and I don't care if South America wasn't on fire yet, but USA is supposed to dominate, folks. They're supposed to. But uh, this is not the stuff that's going on. We uh, absolutely, I, something, I, one of the things I look back, I went and looked at all the draws, and we had five three, five five-set losses. Now tell me, does that have something to do with our kids are playing abbreviated formats? Our kids aren't tough enough. They too many participation trophies. Too much tweener training. Call it tweener training. You know, we pretend pretty good, but we're not doing the job. Anyhow, we're here. We want to try to get some stuff done and some answers to everything. And each week, I'll have a great guest on, or you know, I'll bring some different things up. And there's so many things that we're just not talking about. We're not talking about and. It is aggravating to see the U.S. Open, and I'm not going to go any deeper than saying it's aggravating to turn it on 
and they're trying to operate politics uh, out there in the U.S. Open. It's a sporting event. It's our United States championship, and we, uh, what the heck is going on? We're just, I guess we're barking up the wrong tree. Well, today I've got a man who really is an expert and somebody I've looked up to from afar ever since I met him back in college, but when, he, when I was just started coaching, but I knew of him. He grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I grew up in Indianapolis, so, uh, you know, you knew who the good players were in different uh, sections of the country, but definitely I knew the good players down in Louisville, and back in those days, each, all the different countries had little patches, or uh, what I want to say, um, Dagon, we had uh, pockets of, of good players, and it, it, it seemed to be, whether it was St. Louis, I talked about last week, Bill Price and the McKinley brothers, I know down there you had the Coopers and the Mickey Shads and people in uh, Louisville, Kentucky that did a lot of work, but in Texas you had different people, the Richies, Cliff and Nancy Richie came out of Dallas down there, and they were great, great names, and you had the people from, of course, California and Florida was a hotbed, but it was it was a it was different. And but we dominated world tennis in the '80s. And I'm going to bring him on, Gary Plock. Welcome. I think I got you on the line there, don't I? Yes, you do. Hello, okay, Gary. Well, welcome, man. Welcome. I'm not going to. Bring, I promise you this: when we start, I'm not going to give any of those Indiana, Kentucky jokes. You know, like. Um, you know what uh, we used to say in Indiana: the toothbrush was invented in in Kentucky. You know, any other state it would have been the teeth brush. Now, I'm not going to bring. Hey, hey, Gary, I'm not going to bring these up. You know, I'm not I'm not going to bring these up here, okay? But I heard in Kentucky well, there they they said uh, the two two Hoosiers froze to death in the, at the drive-in theater when they went to see Closed for Season. You know that one winter. You know. So, <laughs> so hey Gary, Gary, I'm, I'm I'm off to a quick start here, okay? <laughs> well, sir, All right, I, don't, I don't mind that, but I I will inform you that Plock's knob was in German Ridge, Indiana, just above Tell City, and about five miles over from Canelton, Indiana, down there on the okay. Ohio River, and so that's uh that's where my roots are, so you can't hurt me with any Kentucky jokes. Although I did get some shoes last year, so I'm wearing shoes now. One let's know that. Oh, okay, okay, but anyhow, lots of great athletes. Indiana, Kentucky All-Star basketball game every summer. I would live to watch. If you remember, they used to have all the top ten high school players in Indiana play against the top ten basketball players. In Kentucky, they'd hold it at either Rupp Arena. Well, it wasn't Rupp Arena. I don't think they named it till then. But up Freedom Butler Hall, Field House. Freedom Hall in Freedom Hall in Louisville. Where Freedom Hall in Louisville. Okay, yeah. that was amazing. But but folks, listen to this, and this is will lead into what we're talking about and the greatness of high school athletics. One of the things I want to bring out for you that the exciting thing, Gary Plock, in looking at your uh, bio. Four times in a row, Kentucky State High School champion. And as an eighth grader, you were runner-up. So now here's the point. You played five years of high school tennis. It must have been very credible. It meant a lot to you in your high school. But five, five times in a row. But I want to make this point. Folks, we didn't have a class system back then. 
did we, Gary? I mean, all all the teams were in there together, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In basketball in Indiana, we had 640 teams, I think, competing against each other. You would go from sectionals to regionals to semi-state to state champions. So basketball turned out these great, great players in both Kentucky and in Indiana. So you Kentuckian or Hoosier or half and half, you know, uh, uh, welcome onto the program, Gary. And and uh, I want to get your bio right here, if, and then I'm gonna. I want I want you to do most of the talking, but I had to get a hey man. I grew up with with uh, with those things, and uh, as you did. But I hope you don't take off. You're not sensitive now. You're not gonna take offense. Right? Oh, like no, everybody I'm not sensitive. I got over things a long time ago when I quit playing <laughs> tennis. That's the only oh, time yeah, I was yeah. a hothead. Oh man! If you couldn't heckle somebody, folks, in the old days, if you couldn't talk, if you couldn't beat them with your racket, you'd start talking them to death, <laughs> and you, that was just part of the the deal. But Gary Gary Plock, you're in three halls of fame, I believe, or four maybe. Uh, I, I I enjoyed reading and had listened to the Steve Denton's comments about you. Steve Denton, the great coach at Texas, U.S. Open champion in doubles and. You were the number one player at Texas, but you got into the uh, University of Texas Hall of Honor in 2018. I guess they called the Hall of Fame the Hall of Honor. Is that That's is correct. that correct? Yeah, yeah. But uh, he talked about sports, mm-hmm. right? And I'm I, and I came down there. I'd met you at a training camp, a Junior Davis Cup training camp. You were three years on the United States Junior Davis Cup camp, and that folks, that was quite an honor. You had to go try out for that. So it was a heck of an honor for you to do that and do all that. But then you went to Texas. And you know what I love, Gary? I loved listening to uh, Steve Denton on that. Folks, you can go to Gary Gary Plock, and then they'll have this. But Steve talked about you as a, what, five-foot-nothing, a hundred-and-nothing, left-handed big server, but you telling all the younger guys, guys, I'm going to play number one for four years. You're not playing number one. Is that correct? Well, you know, when um, you know, one of my fondest memories was at Baylor. They had one good player, and back in the days of the Southwest Conference, every match counted in the nine match uh, ma- dual matches. So there were like eight teams. So it's other. So there's 72 points. So every point mattered. And we got up there to Waco, and Coach Snyder, it's, you know, me and Curran and Denton and, you know, uh, Brad Neighbors and Paul Avis. I mean, we were loaded. Stuart Keller. And uh, so he doesn't know what to do because there's one really good player on Baylor's team at that time, Danny Dobbs. And so he had everybody fill out a scrap of paper and say, okay, who do you think should play one against Danny Dobbs? And, uh, you know, they – came back about five minutes later and they said, well, it's unanimous. Gary got every vote. And so, including mine, unfortunately, I wish I'd <laughs> sent Kevin or something, but I always wanted the, the big guy and to play the big guy. And, you know, uh, so that's uh, that. What, what to me is really uh, uh, one of my best things, I think, is, you know, I had a 74% uh, winning ratio, you know, and uh, like when you came down the first time and played Fernando Mineto, a great player, you know, and fortunately we, our courts were pretty fast. And, 
and I prevailed, but I got the chance to play, you know, the best of the best, and, and I loved it, you know, and, and it, but it was. It was a very competitive situation, and, you know, five foot eight and a half and flat-footed, you know, I had to figure out some things to do, and trying to intimidate a little bit may have been uh, may have been one of the things that uh, that helped me, you know, in the, and then there were other guys on the team that were, like Kevin Curran, he he just assumed play down low or something, and Steve Denton, he just assumed lose and go out and have a good time 30 minutes later and just lets it roll off his back. That was one of his greatest traits. But anyway, I'm digressing. But yes, that was uh, that was quite a time down there. Yeah, you know, there's a couple things you bring up, and this, folks, this is where I want to go with this. There were so many great players. You're talking Kevin Kern was playing three. Steve Denton and Kevin Kern later went on to be the number one doubles team in the world, folks. Steve Denton, I can remember him playing number six. He had basketball socks on up to his knees. And I was asked, and I, I asked Coach, and he took this running start on his serve. I said, my God, Coach Snyder, where would you get this guy he said, Creasy, this guy is going to be really, really good. And and I go, well, okay, he smoked our guy. But the point is, is I, what I love, here's, here's, here's the point. Nowadays, a lot of players don't really want to be the number one guy. Now, I'm saying USA players, they don't burn to be top ten in the world or number one in the world. I'm just telling any American players, if you're out there, you don't, do you? You want to be good enough to not be bad, good enough for things to be comfortable, but the extra drive that it takes to step up and tell upperclassmen and tell this cock, hey, Steve Denton, if you're listening, uh, cocky basketball player from Corpus Christi, I think that's where he was from, but he's Driscoll, saying I'm an asshole. Driscoll, Dr- Texas, where did, where did, Dr- Driscoll, about, about 30 okay. miles outside of Corpus because we'd all go down there and stay there at his place at the NCAA. So yeah. so you've got this guy that's a basketball player that later gets to be mm-hmm. top ten in the world, number one in the world in doubles. But listen, are you listening to this, folks? That this is this is the way that great players were made. And and there were pockets of players and so a guy comes Denton comes out of there and he's saying, Well, this little five foot eight guy is telling me, No, no, you, you go down to the back of the pack, son. I'm gonna be number one for four years and you were and then, but you know, the point is the drivenness there. And then I want to go on. And later, you, you and Denton got to the finals of the NCAA's. Uh, no, you and it was you and Brad Avery. Me and you Kern. And Denton. Me and Kern. You and Kern. Yeah, you we and got, Kern. We got McEnroe and Mays <laughs> two and four in the semis, and then uh, in we lost to Austin yeah. and Nichols. Yeah. Right, and then you lost in the finals, and then McEnroe, of course, won that famous match over John Sadry. Listen, folks, the score. Seven six seven six five seven seven six. Sadri That's never right. got his serve broken. May broke McEnroe right. once. I was sitting right behind that court, and that was a great, great match. But we played three out of five oh, wow. sets. So the little inside thing on this, Gary, <laughs> is that you guys were like two in the country or three in the country. You got upset the first round, I think, by a good Southern Cal team. I think – no, no, you guys had to go indoors, didn't you, at Georgia? We, uh, we lost to UCLA. I, I remember because we had to go indoors, and I got Ferdy Tagan at number one, got him four in the third, and then uh, Kevin beat uh, Winitsky or somebody, 
And we had Paul Avis go back to South Africa, who was our plan number two for us, and didn't come back for the NCAA. So we had a walk-on playing six and three doubles. And the walk-ons back then were not the walk-ons of now. So it was just like giving up two points. So we lost to UCLA 5-4, actually. Right. But uh, right. that was a right. that was a heartbreaker. But oh, anyway, yeah. Well, Snyder <clears throat> Snyder was close to being on suicide alert. He was struggling, and he and I he was the, he was the kindest man ever. The Tut Bartsons, the Dave Snyders, you know, I mean, these people like this were just so so kind to a young coach. And I'm like 26, 29. Let's see about that. Must have been 77, 78. Yeah, and I'm just a young coach. And I said, well, Snyder, you look like you're having a hard time. Hey, how about coming up to the mountains and going fishing? So between the team, after his team lost out, we went up and we went fishing. We must have caught 25 rainbow trout. We grilled them. My friend had a cabin up in the woods up there. We grilled them. He went fishing, came back, and then Kern, of course, won the singles. And you guys got to the finals. Texas dominated that NCAA tournament then. So hey, I'm 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 not hey Gary, I'm not taking credit here. <laughs> I'm just saying I got I got your uh coach uh to to sort of feel good, a little bit better. You know, Chuck, I don't know I don't know if some of the people know this, but when when we met, first of all was up in and you said Junior Davis Cup trouts, which was correct, and it was in Port Washington, New York, and you were on that great coaching staff with Tony Powell Fox and Harry Hopman and and, uh, and all the rest of them, Peter Marmoreno, and you know that I got a big dose of it there. But um, what I was going to get to, because I we've already been in the show just a little bit, and you, you talked about these pockets, and I know all about St. Louis, and that's just an incredible story. I haven't heard your your um, talk on it yet but I, I want to but uh i'm looking at a picture right now this is how crazy i am my townhouse is every inch of drywall has a tennis racket on it or a, a plaque or a picture and some people send me some stuff sometimes and i've got a plaque saying united states professional lawn tennis association championship 1962 winner bernard bartson i've got his picture that oh my said, god Tut. it's yeah. on the and he's about 15, 16, 17, and he's he's hitting the forehand on some of those courts like we played on on the cement with the big fat asphalt lines in San Angelo, because you had it not at the same time all of them, but you had Dave Snyder who you've mentioned, Tut Bartson, and Richie family that all lived in San Angelo, and I believe Woody Blocker probably did at some point too. Uh, but that's incredible when you're talking, going back to what we're going to talk about eventually here probably is what what it was like back then and that type of thing. But uh, thanks for bringing that memory up about Texas because one thing I remember is you were a young coach, but you but I remember is I and I had a really good match against this Fernando that you had, and uh, and um, fortunately he would have probably taken me two and two on play, but. Because uh, he was a great player, but but I think we won. Richard Milford says that it was eight one. I thought maybe we blanked you. No, no, but it might have been eight one. Somebody won. But the, the interesting thing was, is I hung around, and on that orange little bench 
on the fence, you had all those boys lying, sitting down up there, and you talked to them for about 30 minutes before you left. And I'll never forget that. And I said, hey, that reminds me of when I was on ninth grade basketball team and had that Bobby Knight coach, Richard Schmidt, who's still the coach of the University of Tampa in the, at Ballard High, where Alan Houston came out of later. And he had Jeff Lamp and Lee Raker that went to Virginia and played with Samson, a great basketball coach. And he was hard-nosed. And I just walked away, and I said, wow. I said, this guy's serious. And uh, But I had met you, and then you had kind of – gone to Tennessee Tech, I believe, and sent me a recruiting letter. It's one of the letters that I think I still have, along with Bear Bryant's and some others, you know. So uh, <laughs> just one of the fantastic experiences. And, you know, tennis, do it right, you have to have a millions of different little exposures, you know, and, to, and it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about what makes up a tennis player and can be a successful tennis player and all the dynamics of being in America, and, you know, I, I remember one of the things I also thought about, not to ramble too much, but when you're talking about the guys not wanting to play one, well, maybe some of the pros are happy with being 25 in the world instead of five in the world when they see what it really takes. And uh, I remember traveling in Europe and going on those little tournaments over there and things and, and some larger tournaments over there, and, and how the Europeans were getting paid by their clubs or whatever, and they were just happy to be celebrities in France. And it was a great thing, obviously, but it, it really dampened their efforts to really become top-notch players, you know, some of the ones that I saw. So anyway. Um, well, you know, Gary, uh, the, that is exactly where I want to go here, the, the battle between working for mastery or simple success. Uh, I had I grew up Indiana basketball, of course tennis. Uh, I've you know was uh, so when I tennis was my second sport, and I I got to work for Harry Hopman, and that's a long story too. I was the only person picked from when I worked the camp. I was getting seventy dollars a week in Amherst, Massachusetts, and Hopman flashed twenty bucks in front of me two weeks in a row after hitting with his wife, and I wouldn't take it. I did my Hoosier walk around. That's Gary, 20 bucks was 80 beers, okay? Quarter of beer, red solo cups, 80 beers. All right, now I'm just out of college. I didn't take it two weeks in a row. Hopman leaves this note on my door. It says, come see me. I go, oh, my gosh, Lucy didn't like her lesson. I'm getting fired. And I went up there, and he offered me, I want you to come work for me at Port Washington. I go, whoa. I go down there, and, of course, McEnroe's in that group, Peter Fleming, Vita Sherlitis. Mary Carrillo and on and on and on and on and on and then they bring the Bill Junior Durham. Davis Cup team up. Oh my Bill Dur yeah. And Australia. then we had uh gosh my golly, right after Wimbledon in seventy two, Stan Smith strolls in after went beating Estasi in the finals and he's dating what? his soon to be wife and, and I'm going, Whoa I go <laughs> hey man I, I'm not in uh, Indiana here, you know, and the, but the point but the point being I was around Harry Hopman. I was around Harry Hopman. He surely knew the difference between a diamond or a rhinestone. He knew the difference between very, very fine wine or Boone's Farm. I don't want to get mad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, cheap wine. <laughs> I don't want... But he, yeah. he knew the difference between a Swiss not watch and a cheap you know, uh, one from 7-Eleven or something. He knew the difference in 
he would t- he would look at a player and we thought was so great, and he would say the damn kid will never be champion. And and I would go, whoa, that kid looks pretty good to me, but he had that eye. Now, Gary, here's the point: mastery versus success. In your era in the 80s, uh, when you were out starting to play pro tennis and then all of your guys started coming through, we had as many as 41 American-born American born players went to college and made top 100 in the world. We dominated all of the Grand Slams. We dominated world tennis because we had this individualist, tough, hardcore fight be the best don't you know hey i'm going to play number one for four years uh, freshman sorry you're going to have to kill me to take it from me and then no nobody took it from you as a five eight competitor now here's the point mastery is what you work for if you work for mastery you never learn that motivation but success somewhere along the line we went to this academy movement in the united states and everybody thought they had to go to academies so people are working for ranking success now we work for points they play for money. The marketing people have taken this over. I've got this crummy article right here. It'd make you throw up. It said the ITF gave the ITF got seventy million dollars from the gambling industry three years ago. Seventy million dollars for for live stream scoring, Gary. Gambling wow. is number three in the world. Tennis. It was just a Rick Neuheisel on ESPNU today was saying, you know what the third most gambled on sport in the world is tennis because there's the most opportunities with the number of tournaments and the number of number of rounds. You have 127 gambling opportunities and 128 draw. So it's a not big, big that, deal. Think, yeah, not not to interrupt you, but it seems like it could more easily be infiltrated because it's number one global and so that brings into all kinds of characters from different countries. And oh yeah. In terms of fixing, you know, which we've seen already. So and that may be another reason why it's so hot is because the illegal gambling associated with Right. Things. And so and here's where I want to go. You is growing okay. up. You growing up, sure, you wanted to be great. You didn't know where that took you. You didn't you we waited for a month to get a World Tennis magazine. So you growing up, you had this burning desire. And obviously, I guess you weren't going to play at UK or the University of Louisville basketball. So you got good in tennis, and you became one of the best in the country. Now, here's what I want. You had a burning desire, and we're all around all those great players. And we're, we're doing – look, I'm not running anybody down, but we're, we've got a lot of very good players, but the last 20% is not being achieved. Everybody gets 80th percentile paralysis. If you could, could you talk about what your perspective is, what's happening in the United States of America, why we we have a lot of very, very good players, but champions, you know, I, 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 five, three, five, five setters we lost. What was bad in three of the five setters in the men's draw, Gary, we were up two sets to none, our guys. Is that fitness? You know, is that what, what? What is it? Our kids are playing abbreviated matches all the time. So, what? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, that's a very interesting thing that you bring up because I think that there's a cumulative effect to everything that you've mentioned. I think it's a little bit of everything. But what I I thought was really strange is because 
I don't claim to know everything about tennis, and I teach tennis every day in a couple different clubs and have for a long time. And uh, I've gone from kids to teaching adults now. But uh, the thing that I see that's going on out there is I go up to the USTA in Orlando, and I live in Fort Myers, and I said, you know what, I'm seeing, I forget who it was. It may have been Katie McAnally or it may have been somebody else, and I worked with a couple people on serves because that was one of my keys to doing it. Even though I was short and even though I wasn't as powerful as those guys, I could learn to hit a serve better and a kick serve, especially a second serve that was a weapon. Um, and so I said, I don't know a lot, you know, but I know I, I know how to teach this serve. And, you know, I modeled a lot of it after Roscoe Tanner on the first serve and some things I changed. And then I taught it to Kevin Curran. He credited me in Tennis Magazine with teaching that serve after he won Wimbledon and or got to the finals of Wimbledon and, and had, had a big article in there about how to hit the serve. He said he learned it from me. And, what you know, what what I learned, I went up to the USTA and I talked to the player development coach, Ola, and uh, he said, Gary, I think it's unbelievable what you say, and I think it's right, and I think there's a need for it. But you know what? Everybody's got their own coaches or their parents, and we can't deal with them. And so it just told me that, well, the USTA, just kind of like when I was on the Davis Cup team, you know, they're just chaperones, That which is all that all those three years that you talked about me being on the college Davis Cup team and the junior Davis Cup team, great coaches, nice guys, but they weren't out there doing practices like you did later. But uh, so anyway, so for me, it just seemed like, well, it's just more of the same. USTA is going to make the money off the U.S. Open and try to just uh, babysit all these parents basically and agents. And that's what it seemed like to me. And then, um, then there's other people that are coaching, like a Kathy Rinaldi or somebody else that's, you know, maybe was a great player but didn't have a dominating serve. But, you know, they didn't know me from Adam pretty much. And so uh, it just, you know, I said, well, no wonder the American players aren't getting any good. There's no, you know, it's it's all farmed out and parceled out to this academy or that academy or that guy's daddy or you know, whatever it was. And so, you know, it wasn't like the Swedish Tennis Association or something where they've, or Russia, where they've, you know, it's Spartak, where that old lady had all those people come out of. But uh, so, you know, uh, you know, look at the hunger that these Eastern Bloc country kids have when they're coming out. And they may be, say, they're from Switzerland or Spain or the United States, but a lot of them are from behind the Iron Curtain or, you know, China or, you know, that girls, those girls in China, they may be playing tennis 15 hours a day or something and it'd be the only thing. But I, I don't know. But that's when, when I when I went up there and I heard that and the guy was nice and he gave me respect and everything. And, you know, he was a, you probably know him, Malmquist. He was from Georgia and went to Georgia sure. and did the, won the doubles, I think, one He's year. He's a good but man. Real nice yeah. fella. Real nice fella. And good real, man. Uh, Looked like he coordinated everything pretty well, but it's like you're right, but I can't do anything about it. It's, it's kind of the, the thing I got. So, well, that's one of the things. There's I a couple about. things here I want to bring up. Your era was very unique, and I hit on this a little bit when we first started. In every city in America, you would have 
some hot spot. In other words, everyone had a role model in St. Louis. You bring it up. Now, we know, both know the McKinleys there. Chuck McKinley won Wimbledon. And then Bobby, his brother, who was top 50, got to 50 in the world. But Bobby, uh, he's my age, so I always knew of Bobby McKinley. And then what a great, great gentleman who uh, helped me in, in coaching when I got started. But here, Bill Price was their coach. And he had the kids play one whole year, Gary, of ping pong, of table tennis, before he let them on a tennis court. Can you imagine? And 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 uh, and Bobby McKinley told me, he said, "Look, Chuck, you'd go out and you just elongate that ping pong, but we already knew the angles, we already knew our stroke, the contact point, the hand-eye coordination that was there, and then." He said it was amazing we were even playing tournaments. And then you have, of course, in Louisville, the Coopers, of course, uh, and then uh, know, Mickey Shatt. You know, yeah, the, the Buck Holtz and Eisel and Hanksky and Sussman, all these other places, people. Up in uh, Illinois, you had uh, Grabner and Reeson who went to Northwestern. And then in the East Coast, you had people. In Florida, you had – you know, whether it was the Gardner Malloy or, you know, all of the pl- people down there. Oh, gosh, uh, Holiday – was it Holiday Park uh, down yes, there sir. where all of the kids grew up, the Everts and uh, Laurie Fleming and, you know, Pike Rowley, who who you know, one of my good friends. All those kids grew up at the same park. I grew up at a park. Now, the point is, is that when you start farming out, I talked to a parent recently, they were going to go down to an academy in Florida, and I said, look, cliches, facts, opinion, feelings, needs are five levels of relationship. Cliches and facts are surface, you know, just what's going on, not much. Hey, we're going to get to play football here. Fact, opinion, you know what, I'd like to talk about this certain thing. Uh, now, I've got an opinion, but feelings and needs where you have to go, you're never going to get them in an academy. You're never going to get them from third-level coaching. You only get them where people are, care about you a lot. And who I want to hear in your life, you played basketball, you played tennis, what can you imagine, can you remember the moment as a kid growing up where you said, I'm going to be great at this. I'm going to get great at this. Can you remember? You know, it's interesting because you said playing basketball, and one of the big thrills that I had was that I can remember was was stealing a ball in a JV game to preserve a win for Ballard as a backup guard and uh, and having a couple of the peers of mine coming in and seeing the gym, uh, you know, seeing the end of the game before the varsity played, and to me, that was that was a big thrill, and even though it didn't have anything to do with tennis, because I'd already won two state tennis championships by that time, and it was my sophomore year, but, you know, I think the fact that, you know, you're, when you're a tennis player, you're just out there, you're doing it alone in terms of not, not, not being on a team event, even though you're on a, a team in high school, but, um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, I think that mine was pretty gradual, Chuck, because they changed the birthday rule for me. And when I was 16, instead of playing top year 16s, I played three years in the 18s. And that oh. first year, the first year, I, I was ranked 14th in the country as a 16-year-old. But Vitas and Amaya and Dupre and De Jesus and 
Gray King and all these other people, teacher, you know, they were all two years older than me. So really it was such a gradual thing because I, I had that good year. And then I was, I, I was like 17th the next year when, you know, everybody left and then 10 the last year. But so I never really achieved the national thing that I wanted to. But um, I think the, I think I think that when I really uh, felt it was when I won my first uh, championship in uh, ninth grade, you know, and uh, I think that was probably the pivotal point. When you I you said, said hey, I, I can, can do it. Do it. You say I when you won the Kentucky State Championship in the ninth grade, you said, hey, I can do that's this. I, that's right. And getting back to what you're saying, go, going back to your point about local is that's what's different. Is instead of being you know at some place when they're farmed off to. Uh, some other place or they go play a happy tournament where it's four games and, you know, tiebreakers and stuff like that and, and not going and being able to stay with other families, having experience going to other towns because we had the Louisville tennis patrons. And as you mentioned, in my hometown, when I was 10 years old, I was ball boying for the Poncho Gonzalez Fred Stolle exhibition to open the Louisville Tennis Center that you watch so many matches at in national clay. So, you know, I had just like thousands of different experiences. I ball boyed for Arthur Ashe and Santana when they came in on a Philip Morse tour in 67, the year right before Arthur won the U.S. Open, and um, they were doing this promotional tour. And so, you know, I was seeing it from such an early age that I had a myriad of experiences. And so... You know, and and then I kept the Louisville had that Louisville patrons, and when I was nine, ten years old, they'd give us sixty dollars to go to Springfield to play the tournament. So there was that local thing, and I think everything is local mm-hmm. in tennis. And one of the things that's gone, it doesn't have the person that the just what you're talking about. You know, the the uh, the local pro there that's with the kids. It, it just you know, goes away, and so they don't have that daily exposure, many different exposures. So um, it's it's hard for me just to pick one thing, but, you know, when I went down and started, you know, I won the Southerns in 18s, and John Sadry and Tracy, there were a lot of good players in it, Wes Cash, and and so when I, I when I won that, I said, boy, I, I think I can do pretty good now. And But then when I got to Texas and Gonzalo Nunez pulls his stomach muscle, Right, the first season, he's playing one. I'm playing three. Stuart Keller's playing two. They leapfrogged me to one, and then I won every match in the Southwest Conference except the last one at number one to George Hardy, who was runner-up that year to Billy Martin in NCAAs my freshman year. So it just kind of happened. The courts were fast. You know, they slanted kind of downward a little bit, and I could just serve and volley and just play for one break, and that's what I did, you know. And so, Gary, sorry to jump in, but the thought jumps in my head. With no ad scoring, would you have been as successful, you think? I think I, I think it was tougher for me with no ad scoring because, for example, yes. I lost two five-four tiebreakers to Van Winitsky, and he couldn't break my serve. You know, right? And, and so I lost six and six to him at NCAA's one year. I, right. I lost. To tell so is the little, the, the small third. man going to get left out? That's my question. There, are they trying to steer? You? I saw these this match at the U.S. Open. These guys, I mean, it's just there's no point construction. Would you? Can you really see yourself? 
those no ad points, you know, guys just bombing serves. I mean, we're we're hurting our kids, aren't we? I really can't see it. I really can't see it. I mean, yeah, it takes it takes away the grit and the drive and the the hurt and the frustration from playing a long match. I, you know, I, I liked it. I'm I, maybe I'm a reactionary, but I liked it before tiebreakers when you had to play it twelve ten in the third. You know, right. But What's your longest memory as far as? Let's see, they did that. What year did they do that? About 73 or something, 72, 73. They started tiebreakers. You know, but did you ever play any really, really long matches back then? What was no, your I longest did. match? I don't have, yeah, I don't have, I don't have the memory of, of any, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I played some, like, at least 10, 8, and the thirds, but I, I don't know who that would be. I'm not as good as at remembering all those matches. Well, you know, but, I always will bring this up when they talk about the tiebreakers and all that thing, but my greatest mem- my best memory of a high school match ever was I won 20 to 18 in the third, 7, 5, 3, 6, 20 to 18 in the third over a high yeah. school rival, and three weeks later I beat the same guy in New Albany, Indiana, 10, 8 in the third, and the point is, I remember really? that match. Yes, I remember that match. And uh, the the great Dwayne Clee from Indiana State, who's uh, just the best gentleman and a, uh, just a coach. Uh, I mean, uh, he was there and watched that match. And I, uh, but the point I, I wanted to make is, we're shortchanging our kids. I believe of loving the sport to the level. I wanted you to talk about – they build you up a lot as a tennis historian and a tennis purist, they call you. You've got collections of rackets back to the 1800, uh, 1890s and things like that. And uh, what attracted me to trying to get you to come on the show was how you put so many of these results in the, uh, in the you know on the Facebook and different things. Um Talk a little bit about that and your scope of what it was to be a champion, what a champion is now. We had the formula. I mean, maybe we outsmarted ourselves with being trying to be too fancy and modern, you know. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think it just comes down to single-minded purpose a lot of times. If a kid really wants to be good, then that's what he's got to dedicate himself to. I wasn't at the top of the list in terms of that dedication. But what I did do is, like you said, I was like you, and we talked about it a bit real quick about, you know, you couldn't wait to read the world tennis and read every result and see who beat who and where they were playing and what happened in the semis and some of these. And I do have a lot of old world tennises, and I I actually was going to quit putting so much on, and I got so much backlash from people saying, don't stop doing that because we love these results because they're like you and me. It it conjures up some memories, but it also conjures up uh, things that you eat, you you breathe it, and just like Rick Mount went to bed with a basketball under his pillow and, you know, Oscar Robertson, dribbled in the closet in the dark so he could get back. You know, you just, you're just all the time thinking about it. And I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, with society and American kids, that doesn't matter who you are unless, you know, it takes a – I don't see many kids, I'll put it that way, anymore that are, that are like we were in the old days. And I know everybody say, well, that was the old days and things were different. And that's kind of my point. Yeah, they were different, you know. And so there's, there's a lot of intangibles, it seems to me, with the – 
age of technology and kids looking into a screen all the time and you know even if they're not you know athletes looking to be the best tennis players in the world just the just the the general difference that there is and that's why I said about and and you know that's why I think and you had mentioned something that I think really to have great tennis programs it also almost always has to come from a local tennis area and it doesn't have to be a big town but rather than shipping off to a tennis academy you keep and Bottom keep up. those best players well you you said it i remember remember reading your book and you know, reading about the pecking order, you know, just like whether it's your team or anything else, you know, bottom up pecking order. And, you know, Roger Federer played with some kids that weren't the best players when he was in Switzerland. And I remember at first people saying, well, this guy, he just doesn't have, the, he doesn't have the, uh, you know, the fight and the fire because he just, he's playing with kids that aren't even any good. Well, he was in Basel working out with where, you know, where he's from. And, uh, so anyway, I, I think that, uh, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I look in one of these magazines in 1961, and you got Mickey Shad, local guy, Roddy McNerney, Jackie Cooper, Bill Spencer, all these guys that were like top ten players in the country, and they're all from Louisville. But they also had a the big tournament in Louisville, and they had these organizers that had this patrons program and gave me sixty dollars to go play a tournament. And you know, nowadays it's two thousand dollars. To go no. you know, on a cheap weekend, probably to go play one tennis tournament. You've got to go to right. San Diego or wherever, you know. So I mean, only the elite can afford that, right? We we definitely not honoring the history and the heritage of the game, which makes me remember uh, Gary and uh, everybody out there. Um, uh, have you read Rod Laver's autobiography? It's by yes, Triumph Books. It's fantastic, wasn't that the it? The one that Bud I've read, I wrote the one that Bud Collins wrote. No, no, the, this is uh, no, the, this is a newer one. I got a copy this summer, Triumph Books. It's just called Rod Laver, and then it's autobiography. And Triumph oh, Books, uh, it, it's fantastic. It starts out when he's a kid and how he has to, his dad, his brothers played, and they played on Ant Hill. They used ant, old Ant Hills and scrubbed out a court That's somehow. And, and then just goes the whole thing of how he met Hopman, and Hopman didn't think he was much at first. And then by the end of the week, Hopman was telling the guy, oh, what the heck, Bill, what's his name, that sort of discovered him over in Rockhampton. And then he goes through this whole thing and his whole life. It's fantastic. When I was re I'd read it and I'd just beat my chest and be proud of, of being in tennis because the passion exuded there, Gary. And, and, and what is making me very uh, upset, I have a, my good friend J.P. Weber will call me and he said, you know how mad I am. You know how mad I am. You know what they're doing to tennis now. They're changing. They're going to have six different kinds of abbreviated scoring to make it easier for the kids. And I always tell everybody, easy to pick up, easy to put down. You know, the more you champion a week, you're going to weaken all our champions. But we do so many things, Gary, because we can, not because we should. Now, golf, and here's where I'm going with this. We're missing a boat. We don't honor our game with the history and the heritage, whereas golf – it's just my opinion, but they 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 honor the game, the history, the heritage. Never, 
Oh, Ever anything on TV where they're not bringing up Arnold Palmer or Sammy Snead or, or you know, you know, uh, Ben Hogan or, you know, some of the great greats. It, there's there's a tidbit always, and we don't do that, do we? We we no, like we Madison don't. Madison yeah, Avenue Flash, man. Yeah, that that's right. And not that this is where we are taught what we're talking about, but I think that tennis at one time was just so disjointed because you had the amateurs and the pros and you had Poncho over here and Rod couldn't play there and Roy Emerson's one of these right, things. Right, right. So Labor talks really about that a lot back in the 60s That's, and early. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, we're, we're definitely diminishing the sport. I've seen your, your, your talks on it and, and the fact that, uh, that the game being shortened, it just, it changes the whole game. It's not the same game. It's a different type of game. It's to me. It's more like Mexican sweat or something, where you like seven cards <laughs> right. down. Okay. You know, arena I football. The, I always say it's arena yeah, I gotta football. Get, I got to get the three so I can get the four. It, it is to me. That's that's what it's like because it takes out so much of the strategy of the game, the stamina, fitness of the game, and you know the gladiator part of the game, and that that sports and athletes should be pursuing is you know their 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 very best under suffering circumstances. You we've know. made chess into yeah. checkers, I say. We've turned fly fishing yeah. into bait casting. We've turned uh-huh. uh the you know the we just have diminished so much the depth of it. Uh Tim Wilkinson was on a program JP Weber's back and he said we used to play and you you know Tim of course. He said we used to play for tournaments of rivalries. He said if I lost to somebody I would wait for a year to try to beat him again. He said rivalries and then tournaments of heritage. But tournaments of heritage, now we've taken tournaments. You put in there when you won, I think you won the Sugar Bowl, and you know, Orange Bowl, ah. Sugar Bowl, Gator Bowl. These were big Sugar events. Bowl. Sugar, Sugar Bowl, yeah, Sugar Bowl. And you won that, and, and the point is, what if that was called, back when you were a youngster, was called Blue Group Level 3? <laughs> That's so. Do you understand where I'm going here with this? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and and so, oh, my kid won the blue group level three at the YMCA, and you're going, okay, you know, next, you know, and and the point, no, no, you won the Sugar Bowl, that tournament of heritage. Yeah. We're making so many yeah. mistakes. It is just, it's it's just mind-boggling that we're not doing the things that capture the passion. Here's my question. Number one, uh, two questions I want to do before our program. So we got about ten minutes here. I would like for you to talk to parents out there, and if you've got youngsters, tell them tennis is still the greatest sport in the world. Tell them what you would do as they bring their youngster up and some of the strategies. What should they do next? And then I want you to talk about our sleeping giants in tennis, if that would work. But Talk to the parents and the coaches out there. What 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 your thoughts are, Gary? Well, that's a uh, that's a very very large subject right there. But uh, you know, I, I think coming up now in tennis, kids is that they've just got to want to go out there and do something that, and and from parent parental standpoint, that. I'm, for example, I'm 60, I'm turning 65 here. Now, Whoa. I was on court 
Uh, yeah, and I was on the court six and a half hours yesterday, and I've, I'm in my 60th year playing tennis or teaching it. And when I when I do my lessons, I get a, get out there and hit with them and move, and and it's been the greatest thing in the world because, um, you know, I was fortunate enough I didn't have a long pro playing career, so I'm fortunate enough that I've taken care of my body. I don't have any artificial joints. I'm on clay. I can get out there and play. And I'm healthy. I don't have high cholesterol. I don't, you know, smoke. I don't have high blood pressure. And, you know, not to say, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed and lucky for that. But I have to think that tennis is probably the prime reason that that's the case. And the, the fact I can get out here in the hot sun and, and do that type of thing day after day is, is because tennis is anaerobic and it's aerobic, you know, and you're you're always moving a little bit, and I always tried to move real gingerly anyway and conserve energy. And so if I were a parent, and I am a parent, and I had a daughter that played tennis and didn't take it, you know, competitively past 15 or 16, but, um, you know, I would want them playing solely for the sake of their health. And then going past that, you know, if they have an aptitude for it, um, just don't be too, you know, you've got, it's a hard thing, but you've got to divorce the emotional part of being a parent with a kid from the tennis part of it. And that's a hard thing to do because I wanted to see my daughter win as, as much as anybody. But, you know, parents, it's, it's real easy to get out of line without knowing you're getting out of line. And so, you know, if, if you're telling me to say something to a parent, I would tell them to be a parent, and part of a parent is guiding them and structuring things for them and then figuring out at what point do they make their own decisions about things. But, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly proven that the human brain doesn't really mature until age 25 at least. So... Uh, for them to do the right things is, is very, very important for their, their mental health in the future. And so I, I just think that uh, as, as far as somebody that's a really good player and got some kids is, you know, is that you've really got to, I don't know, I don't know the answer to how you, I haven't been around it enough to how you get the kids to the next level when they're really, really good. I, you know, because I see them going to academies and then I see them having emotional problems because they're away from their home or, you know, or whatever. But it just seems like it's a very difficult time right now to try to be a player. And it's so expensive to try to be a tennis player that uh, it, it kind of boggles my mind, Chuck. So try to, instead of trying to tell you something brilliant, I just kind of. No, 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 no. Here's, here's what I picked up and the parents did too. You talk. You talked first about inside out, and the, what is healthy, and what is nurturing, and what is solid for the inside of that youngster, and them owning it. And then the formula, the recipe. I think every parent needs to figure out the best. And and I wouldn't send my kid away unless I was with them, or now and then, maybe a few days here and a few days there to camps. But I, I, folks, I just would not do it. I would not do it. I would, I would scrap it out as best we could. But I wanted to ask you about this. You know, maybe we've got to, we've we've programmed. You cannot program the heart. 
You cannot program the passion. Um, I, I would, do you see any sleeping giants in in tennis I uh, that, that could reignite us? I've used small-town tennis USA, high school tennis, tournaments for kids 20 to 35 where there's nothing. The old fogies like, uh, you know, I wanna, I'm, not, I'm more of an old fogey now than you. I'm not telling anybody how old I am. But the bottom line on the thing is everybody's going to pickleball. That pickleball, come on, that's sacrilege. You know, those are the things. Gary, do you have a do you have a Gary Plock sleeping giant that we might be able to awaken somehow in the USA? Any thoughts there? I have I have I have thought about this and you know, you heard back in the fifties and sixties that it was an elitist sport. But then you see all the great players, the Cliff Ritchies and, you know, all these people that become Dick Stockton's, all these people that become great players, Pete Sampras. They're not, like, loaded from families and just can travel around and do things. They're helped by people in certain ways, and but they had a family unit. Like Dick Stockton, he had a lot of brothers and sisters, grew up in Garden City, you know, middle New York on Long Island, and you know, his dad moved him out to uh, California, and his brother, Steve, who was, you know, the older brother that was really good, too, and, and did all these different things to try to help his and his his other brothers' and sisters' careers. And so, I mean, it you know, it, it, has, to, it has to start from somewhere internally. But my idea was to do something where you could you could get everybody together and do free tennis for X amount of people and have a systematic thing and where, you know, maybe one week I have Chuck Creasy and Carrie Stansbury and five other people come in and donate their time to this camp and do stuff and just have corporations put money into it and train kids, you know, whether they get to be great tennis players or not, but you would have control of how to work with those kids. And that's just something, a dream in my mind. I said, gosh, you know, what if me and I had me and Carrie Stansbury and Steve Denton and Chuck Creasy and, you know, Dick Savitt or whoever, you know, Richard Meyer. I think we could do that. I think we could do that locally by state probably if the state associations, you know, it's sort of like my idea on Small Town Tennis USA. You know, 75% of our professional athletes come from cities less than 50,000 people. But the point is is the grassroots – could be watered, nurtured if within from people within the state, and I think that maybe people ought to just try to start. I think to focus. Well, that's what they did. Be, that's what I'm talking. That we both, you know, what we did back in Louisville and St. Louis and things. There were organizations, and they went to tournaments. They did things, and they. I mean, when I, I, we, I had clinics. I had clinics from Ray Moore and uh, Roy Emerson and them. Holy you know, cow. When they come into the tournaments and, you know, other times, Pancho Gonzalez doing a thing down at the fairgrounds on the cow cattle courts and, you know, because there was somebody organizing that. And so you're right. You couldn't do it on a, you couldn't do it on a big basis, but you could do it on a small basis. I think bottom up again, the people in the community, folks, get in your community and help out kids. I've got about two minutes and hey, Gary. Would you dedicate and talk two minutes about Coach Dave Snyder, who was one of the finest gentlemen, I think, ever, for, for me as a young man coming up, young coach coming up? Could you give him credit and honor here today? 
Well, you know, Dave Snyder is kind of like my father, you know, and in a lot of ways, uh, things that my father didn't didn't do. Although I had a great father too, but Dave Snyder, uh, first of all, he was a great player. He beat Neil Frazier at Southampton in '56, and I would say he was at the top greatest player. But he played, and he was he was a product of Winfield, Kansas, another small area that had Arc City and a few and had a guy named Curly Vaughn that was one of his mentors that was around there. And basically Dave Snyder was just a, probably the greatest tennis coach to me. I mean, I'm prejudiced about it, but he 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 also knew how to work with the players and he just had a he had a kind heart and he still does have a kind heart and um I think that's one of the things. I mean, he didn't have a lot of challenge matches with me and Kern and Denton because he knew we'd be throwing rackets at each other before it was through. <laughs> and so he he kind of had a you know kind of had a a wisdom like Solomon or something on kind of how to deal with things and you know just a just an upstanding man, moral and ethical and and just a great person and uh, really very fortunate that I. Uh, got to experience time with him in my life because I'll never forget him. Well, we're extremely fortunate that you've been on the program today. Uh, extremely and we're going to have to get together, man. I and and the point is is this is that your posterity will go on forever regardless of your prosperity. In other words, your influence on other people, Gary and um I just uh I love that you're still energized to stay in it. I mean, I'm still energized. You keep putting the stuff out there on Facebook and and uh Gary, do you uh, would you welcome anybody looking at your website? People can look you up at Gary Plock. And hey, uh, you, up. what I'd really want to tell them though, since we only got a minute, a second, is to tell them that how about the time in Lexington, Kentucky when you came to see the ITF tournament and I took you over to Wheeler's Pharmacy and we sat around and had a little breakfast with Joe B. Hall of the Kentucky Wildcats. Oh, my gosh, yes. Remember that, 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 that Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I met Kyle Macy up there, too. Them. God, the Kentucky people, I mean, gee whiz, the legacies there. Kyle Macy Kyle's was a Hoosier, though. Yeah, he's a Peru-Indiana boy, and he yeah, actually Peru, went Indiana. Play, played for right. Brad House one year before he transferred and played number three doubles at Purdue on the tennis team that one year, and he's playing a lot of tournaments. He would be an excellent person for you to talk to also because I'm sure he Maybe I'll try to get him, him on the program. You know, he was coached yeah. by John McLeod in the professional ranks. John McLeod coached the Phoenix Suns, Dallas Mavericks, New York Knicks, and on in Notre Dame and on and on. But John mm-hmm. McLeod was my high school basketball coach, Gary Plock, in 1966. Right? He and a man named Bill Green. And I am forever grateful for how he taught me to give 100% and dive for balls and do. There was nothing except 100% effort with John McLeod and and I'm going to leave everybody with this. I told my team yesterday, and Gary, this is the way you were. I said, in my 42 years of college coaching, 49 years of coaching, I have never had a player come back and said, Coach, we work too hard. But I said, 100% of the time, <clears throat> players will come back and say, why didn't you see more in me? Why didn't you push me more? I still carry my high school, my high school tennis coach, Brother Roland Driscoll, 
His, he passed away three years ago at age 97. I still have his picture on my dashboard of my car. I look at it every day and think of those coaches. And Gary Plock, you've been a jewel to be with today. And, and I'm just extremely grateful. And, and thank oh, I you. am too, Chuck. You're, you're the greatest. And I'll tell you, that's, that's what's wrong with American tennis right there is they don't have a picture of their coach right there on their uh, every day, every day we're grateful, yeah. and hey, and God bless you, and God bless everybody out there. This is Chuck Creasy and American Center. Gary Watt, thank you. Come